Luke chapter 3 is where we find ourselves. We're working our way through the New Testament one chapter a week. And uh, we are thankfully on target here to get into chapter 3 today. Uh, We're going to see a transition today uh, from a focus on John the Baptist moving to a focus on the work of Jesus. And so up until this point, uh, you've seen a lot of what John has to, had been doing, a little bit about Jesus' life. Uh, but now we're really going to make that transition. And by the end of this chapter, it'll be uh, the ministry of Jesus going forward. Uh, what we will see in this chapter, though, is that Jesus is going to be declared the Savior by um, uh, a prophesied forerunner. That's John the Baptist. Uh, he's going to be, <clears throat> or hear the voice of the Spirit of God proclaiming at his baptism that this is, in fact, God's beloved son, and then we'll actually look at a royal lineage when we look at his genealogy. So we'll see how all three of these things are pointing out the fact that he is the Messiah, and that's really what Luke's attempting to accomplish here at the beginning of this book. He's just laying that groundwork out for the reader to understand that Jesus is the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. He meets all the requirements and even has the endorsement of God himself. So uh, great stuff in there. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now that is a mouthful, but that is Luke's way of giving us a date. He's trying to give us a historical record so we can understand when this happened in history. Now for us, it would have been easier if he would have just said, yeah, it was like June 20th and 30 AD, right? Like that would have been so much easier for us, except the calendar that we use didn't exist back then. The calendar that we use uh, didn't start coming into use until like 525 BC or 525 AD, but it wasn't called AD back then. Uh, But this guy, Dionysus, Um, decided that all of history should turn on the birth of Jesus. And so he created a new way of numbering our years. And so he said at the birth of Jesus, everything before that was B.C., before Christ, and everything after that, uh, amino domini, amino dom, anyway, Latin stuff, that means the day of the Lord. And so that's the way he divided it out. They didn't have a calendar like that. In fact, what they had is multiple types of systems to establish the date. And so if you were a Jewish person, uh, you were following a lunar calendar, which is awkward for a number of reasons, but a lunar calendar because, see, the the, the moon doesn't actually just circle once a year, right? That's not how that works. And so they'd have to, every couple years, they would just throw in a leap month, like, oh, we're off season again. Let's throw an extra month in there just to kind of get back on track. So that makes it really hard historically to track things down. Uh, the other thing is the year numbering system. They kind of estimated at one point the, the uh, year that creation happened and they just started counting up from there. And so if you are Jewish and you follow the old Jewish dating system, this is year, in their opinion, year 5,732 or something like that. That's just the way they did it. But at that time, they weren't the dominant Uh, governmental authorities. The Romans had their own system of counting dates uh, that was in fact different than what we use as well, although there's some crossover there. Uh, But they used a completely different system uh, that was dated based on the rise of their kingdom. And so anyway, it gets very confusing. So what Luke does, which I think is important, is he takes these seven different historical figures and tells us where they were in their rule or in their leadership at that time so that you can take all seven of those things and triangulate historically 
kind of where that would have fit in history. We still don't have an actual date, though, because we don't have all the information to make that as clear as possible. We have it to be pretty close, though, and uh, so we can look at all the archaeological digs and we can see information and stored and try to calculate back and we can kind of come to um, some basic conclusions about when this happened, which really would have put it uh, in somewhere in the year of, uh, of uh, maybe a 25 or 26 AD, which is going to be confusing to some people. Because later on in this chapter, it's going to say Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry. And so if you're saying, well, if it's the 30th year after his birth, wouldn't that put us at 30 AD? Well, here's the problem. The guy in 525 who decided when Jesus was born, we don't know how he came up with the date. There's, there's no clear way that he came up with that date. It's almost like he just thought to himself, I think it was right about here. And he was just off by a few years. And so when you take the historical account here that Luke gets us, uh, compare that to the historical record, uh, you can actually pick a better time frame, but you can't pick an exact date or day when this happened. It just gives you kind of a, a close year in there that you can look at. But anyway, he takes those seven historical figures. The other thing that's important about that seven historical figures. Uh, it's a reminder for us that Jesus fits into history. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a made-up story. This isn't something that's some fictional account that's just uh, uh, made for us to get some kind of cool moral teachings from. Jesus was a real person. He really existed in history. And we can see where he fits in the history of the world. In fact, uh, you can ask secular or non-secular uh, historians today, was Jesus a real figure they will say, absolutely, Jesus really did exist. Jesus really did make the claims to be, they might not agree with his claims, but they would say Jesus really did make the claims that he was God, that he was the Messiah. His followers truly believed that he was God, that he was the Savior, and they really believed that he not just died, but then resurrected from the dead. They'll, the historians will tell you, they're saying that this is a real person. Important for me because that's kind of how I think. I think in these very logical boxes and these very logical thought-out windows. And for Luke to just kind of lay this out as a history lesson for me, very important. But probably more important than the history lesson there is what happens in that year. It's in that year that the Word of God came to John. Again, this wasn't John's story. This wasn't something that John came up with. What's being proclaimed in the Scriptures is that God Himself gave John the words to speak. And so God now is again speaking to his people. Theologically, we talk about the time from the end of the Old Testament, the end of the book of Malachi there, until the time that we see this, uh, this presentation of uh, the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. We call that the 400 silent years, that God had just been quiet. No prophets, no new scripture. It was just silent years. Nothing new was happening. And then all of a sudden, God begins to speak again, as he did in the Old Testament, through a prophet, a prophet by the name of John that we know as John the Baptist. So uh, he begins preaching there in verse 3. <clears throat> he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. He comes out 
to the wilderness, not the middle of the city. He goes out to the wilderness. There's a specific reason he goes to the wilderness. There's a couple. One is the flowing Jordan River. He needs water to baptize, so that's one very clear reason why he does that. The other, though, is he's modeling his life after Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament. But anyway, he's out there preaching, but he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's basically telling all the people, your life's a mess. It's time to start acting right. Why don't you get into the water, cleanse yourself, and get out of the water and start living right. That's really what his, his sermons were. That's what his message was that he was preaching to them. Now, when it says baptism here, we don't want to get uh, confused. We don't want to associate this with the baptism that we have today. We do baptisms today as well, but we don't do them for this reason. We don't do them uh, specifically for the repentance or for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism for us in the New Testament has a little bit different meaning. It's uh, uh, more meaningful because of the death of Jesus Christ, which accomplishes our forgiveness of sins. But in the book of Romans chapter 6, you know, we had a baptism this morning. I was able to read that section of scripture there. It describes what baptism is for us. For baptism, we are reenacting the death of Jesus as we're buried in the waters of baptism, and then the resurrection of Jesus as we come up out of the water, now living in newness of life. That's a picture that we're doing. We're retelling that gospel message. This baptism was something new. It was something different. It was atypical for Jews to be baptized for spiritual reasons. They would be baptized for health reasons. So you can see in the Old Testament law, uh, if you had certain diseases before you could come back into the city and be around people again, you had to show that you were clean. And so you had to do a certain amount of time outside of the city. It was their version of a quarantine, right? And then when it was time for them to re-enter, they had to go through this baptism process that they would baptize themselves. And then that would be showing that, hey, we're clean. We can come back into the city now. That's what that was doing. Well, what John is doing is he's taking that same imagery and he's saying, instead of cleansing yourself from sickness, you're cleansing yourself from sin so that you can rightly re-enter into society. And then Luke connects that to the words of the prophet Isaiah. He quotes here uh, in verses uh, 4 through 6. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And in there, essentially, it's talking about this voice of one crying out in the wilderness. But he has a specific job. John the Baptist's job was to make ready the way of the Lord. He was preparing the people for the Lord to show up so that the Lord could bring, as it says in verse 6, the salvation of of God. That's ultimately what was trying to happen there. That's what was occurring there. So he's making way or he's making, he's preparing or making ready the people for the way of the Lord. Uh, an imagery that we may not necessarily uh, truly get for us, the clearest way that we can think of it is if you know your mom is about to come check your room, you clean it real quick, right? Like that's kind of what we would think of making way for not the Lord, but for mom, still important, right? Uh, but in, in those times, if a king was going to be traveling through a town, he would send somebody an advance party a forerunner who would come to the town and say, guys, your town is a mess. <laughs> you need to clean this up because the king's coming to town. He can't see this garbage on the streets. He can't see these broken roads. And so the people would be like, oh my goodness, the king's coming. We don't want him to think we're some backcountry hick town. We're going to clean up our city. And they would go through this process of making everything great again so that when the king came through, the people were like, wow, look at this wonderful city we have king, whoever you are, right? And this is what John, again, he's taking this imagery from the book of Isaiah, but he's preparing the people instead of the city. And he's saying that the way the people should prepare themselves is that they should repent 
so that they can receive forgiveness of their sins in preparation for the Lord to appear and bring salvation. Uh, Just to put it in context like this, just to simplify it for you, if you know God was coming to church next Sunday, I bet you would confess your sins before you came in the building. I just bet you would, right? Because God's going to be here. He knows stuff. He knows all my stuff. Hope it doesn't scare you to know that God is here, right? Like the Holy Spirit who is God dwells within us and every time we gather together in Jesus' name, he's in our midst. But that's kind of the idea. God's coming. I might want to try to look like one of his followers now. That's what exactly or or primarily uh, John was trying to do. So the weird thing about John is he's a little bit different style of preacher than I am. John is more what we would call today a hellfire and brimstone preacher, a jump up and down, spit, bang on things, scream at people types preacher, right? I'm not so much like that. I talk too fast sometimes, but I really don't have a whole lot of emotional up and downs. I don't like get real excited. I'm like, you can tell I'm excited about something because I'm talking about it. But beyond that, there's not a lot of excitement in the way that I do things, right? And so we have this whole thing kind of laying out for us here. And uh, John, it says in verse 7, starts to see all the crowds. It says, so he began saying to the crowds, listen to his sermon here, who are going out to be baptized to him, by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Real nice guy here, right? I think their answer would be like, you warned us, John, like you just said, repent. But anyway, John says in verse 8, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have Uh, been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, what about us? What should we do? He said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Well, he's confrontational in the way that he's speaking to them. And he's saying this, you know, again, he says this, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But his concern is that they would actually live out their repentance. Uh, It seems like there were many people who wanted to be identified with the ministry of John, maybe even baptized by John. They wanted to be identified as repentant people, but they didn't actually want to live in repentance. They wanted to say, look at me, I was baptized. What they didn't want to do is say, look at my works. You can see I'm a repentant person by the way I do things. You can see that my life has changed. It's turned around. John is really seemingly kind of worried about this. And so that's where he warns them in verse 8 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he even warns them, particularly these Jews, he warns them. He says, look, it's not good enough to say that Abraham is your father. And for some Jews, that was like a big deal. Like they would say, well, of course, we're covered. Of course, we're saved. Of course, we're God's chosen people. We're Children were the offspring of Abraham. Of course we're good. There's nothing wrong with us. 
John would remind them that God doesn't really need you to fulfill his promises to Abraham. You remember Abraham in the Old Testament that God made a promise to him that through his seed, through his descendants, the nations would be blessed. Well, the Jewish people thought that was them. God says, no, it was seed, not seeds. And that descendant was not all the Jews, it was one Jew by the name of Jesus. That was what God's plan was, to bless all the nations through Jesus. And so he warns them, much like he did, by the way, in Exodus chapter 32, the nation of Israel. Again, they're wandering around in the wilderness, they sin against God. God says to Moses, here's the deal, I've had enough of these people. I'm just going to wipe them out, just you and I, buddy, we'll start over. We'll rebuild the nation Israel, I don't need any of these people. Moses begs God not to destroy him, so he doesn't destroy him, but he doesn't let them enter the promised land. The next generation gets to go into the promised land. But again, a reminder from God, I don't need the Jews to fulfill my promises. The promise that he made to Abraham is going to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So anyway, all of that being said, that kind of brings some confusion to the people. So they ask a very simple question, okay, if we're supposed to bear the fruit of repentance, What exactly does that look like? What do we do? And it's really amazing. The answer that John gives them is kind of the same things we teach our kindergartners to do. Share. Stop taking other people's stuff. Stop lying to people. Pretty simple stuff, right? He just kind of lays it out pretty simple for them. Look, the first one there in verse 11. And this is just generically put out. But it says, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. How do you show that you're living a life of repentance? You show it by caring and sharing with other people. It becomes now evident that you're not focused on only yourself. You're focused instead on other people. This is actually something that the nation of Israel struggled with generationally. It seemed over and over and over again in the Old Testament, when God would judge the nation of Israel, he almost always throws these things in there. That you just didn't do justice for the poor. You didn't care for the sick and the needy in your land. That really offends God. It should be a real obvious thing for us to do. It should be something that's real obvious for us. Now, I do want to point this out because anytime you talk about taking care of the needy, you'll get somebody that stands up and says, well, welfare is a broken system and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I'm not talking about government. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you personally. If you have two tunics and you know somebody, tunic is like a coat or a shirt or something. If you have two and you know somebody else that doesn't have one at all, share with them. If you have lots of food and you know somebody that has no food, share with them. You can't solve all the world's problems, but you might be able to help one person get through the winter. You might be able to help one person make another couple of days with the food that you can share with them. not saying give them all your food. You still have to eat. I'm not saying give them all your coats. You still have to be warm. But if you have an extra one, give it to them. A number of years ago, we had a uh, family in the church that wanted to collect coats for Kamiya. Great idea. So we had, it was Christmas time, and we had this sleigh setting up out there, and people would bring in their extra coats, and they stacked them up in there. I'm like, this is great. Look what our church is doing. We're giving coats to people at Kamiya. They're going to be warm in the winter. I was real excited about it until one Sunday morning, somebody in the church tapped me on the shoulder and kind of meekly said, Pastor Sean, can I have one of those coats? I don't have a coat. It just like blew my mind up to think, wait, there's somebody in my own church that doesn't have a coat. How's this even possible? I'm like, yeah, 
Go out there, pick the best coat, pick whatever coat you want out of there. I don't care which coat you pick, but pick one that fits. I guess that's probably the most important, right? Uh, and so this was, to me, the coolest thing. He picked my coat, a coat that I had put in there a couple weeks before. And then from that time on, for the next couple of years, when I saw this guy, he's wearing that coat. And I saw like this visual example of like, Sean, it's great that the church did this thing. But for me, it was more important to see that I had extra and I helped somebody else. It was my responsibility as an individual believer. It was a visual aid for me every time I saw this guy. One who has extra can share with one who doesn't have enough. A very simple teaching. Jesus says very similar things in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, then you start to get very specific people coming to ask questions of John the Baptist. Here in verse 12, uh, you have a specific group, the tax collectors. Tax collectors were not well thought of by the Jews. They were actually thought of as um, uh, uh, enemies, essentially, because they were working with the Roman government. And so they were really kind of hated. In fact, you know, oftentimes you'll see this in the scriptures that one of the accusations against Jesus was he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Like it's the same thing in most people's mind, right? So now this group of tax collectors comes to John and says, well, what shall we do? And John says to them, and again, this is not complicated stuff. He says, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. In other words, stop stealing from people. Yes, your job is tax collector. And the government has every legal right to claim taxes. And it's your job to claim those taxes, to bring those in. But don't steal from people by taking extra from them. Is that a complicated ask? A hard way to show that you're repentant? To just be honorable when you actually do your job? Pretty simple stuff. The next group that comes to him, it says in verse 14, some soldiers were questioning him. What about us? I mean, imagine this. The Romans were seen as occupiers of the nation of Israel. These are your enemies, essentially. And these guys are soldiers, likely working for the Romans now. They come to John. What should we do? Powerful what John says. He doesn't tell them to quit being soldiers. He doesn't tell them that, which I think is important for us to remember today. There are those people who say, oh man, the military by nature is evil and no Christian should ever be involved in any of that because it ultimately leads to death and destruction and war and all those kinds of things. And yeah, that's a possibility. But John didn't tell them to leave the military to stop being soldiers. Listen to what he said. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Again, Really simple stuff. Stop stealing from people. Stop lying about people. Just be content in your circumstances. Well, what I like about this is essentially what it says to believers is it doesn't really matter what your career field is. You can live a repentant life in that job. Unless you're like a mafia hitman or something like that. There's probably some actual limits to that. I don't want to get like out of hand. But if you're doing a legal profession, even if it's one that others don't like, you know, you can make jokes about lawyers or whatever you want to right here. But even if it's a career that other people don't like, just do it in an honorable way. That's the way you live a life of repentance. It tells us really that all of us, whatever our career is, whatever our job is, 
we have the opportunity to be image bearers of Jesus Christ in our job. And so if you work for the railroad or if you're in the National Guard or if you're a school teacher or you work at Walmart or you work at a fast food restaurant or whatever it is you might do, whatever you do in word or deed, you do it in the name of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a simple concept and it really frees us up as well. I've had this conversation with countless people. Like, they're like trying to decide, like, should I keep my current job? Should I take this new job? And I ask them some pretty simple questions, and it kind of goes back to this same idea. Because if you look at what's happening here, he's basically just telling them to love their neighbor, isn't he? It's like, in your job, don't steal from people, don't lie to people, share what you have, just, just be a loving Christian. That's what you're supposed to be anyway, right? That's how we're supposed to be. So you have two job opportunities. You ask the question, in these two jobs, am I able to love God and love others? If the answer is yes, take whichever one you want. The more fun job, the higher paying job, the more prestigious job. I don't care what job you take. Just live an honorable life in that job. It gives us so much freedom, by the way. Which house should I live in? Should I continue to rent this apartment? Should I buy this house? Should I get the house outside of town or inside of town in this other city? Whatever it is. Can you love God in that house and love your neighbors, your literal neighbors? Yes, then pick the house you can afford, whichever one you want that you can afford, right? Live in that house. It's okay. You have that option. The key is to glorify God, to live a life of repentance wherever you are. That's all John's trying to get the people to do. He's not trying to call them all into missions. He's not trying to call them into the pastorate. He just wants them to live a life of repentance, to actually live out the things that God has asked them to do. Well, that leads the people to ask some questions about who John is. In verse 15, it says, While the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. The people are rightly asking the question, if he's preparing the way for the Lord to bring salvation, is John the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? Is he the Savior, the Christ that they've been waiting for, the anointed one? Is he that guy? And John answers and says, nope, not me. Let me tell you a little bit about the guy who is coming after me. The guy who's coming after me, he's mightier than me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. I'm baptizing you in water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this guy, when he comes to town, he's going to gather the wheat into his barn and he's going to burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. With all of this, he's preaching now the gospel to the people. And that gospel, that good news at this point, as John would have understood it, is that the Savior is coming. It's not the gospel the way we preach it today, because we can preach not only that the Savior is coming, the Savior has come and died paying the price for our sins. But John didn't have all that information yet. That wouldn't have been something he would have fully understood yet. All he would have known is that the Christ is on his way, but there's a big difference. And that is that Jesus himself would be mightier and that his baptism would be a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire and that he's going to have this ministry of refining of people. And the way he describes it, it's an agricultural picture. 
And it's the idea of when you've got a bunch of wheat in your barn, what they would do is they would thresh this wheat and then you have to separate out the good kernels of wheat from all the the husk and everything else that falls off there, the dust that's in the field, all that stuff has to come off. And so they would wait for a windy day or they would just live in Wyoming and every day would be a good day for this, but they would wait for a windy day and they would take this wheat and they would throw it up in the air And the breeze would come through and it would blow off all the little husks and all the little extra pieces and all the dust and dirt and all that. That stuff would blow away and the heavier grain of wheat would just fall to the ground. And so it was just this separating process that he would do over and over and over again, a farmer, until all the junk was gone and all that was left on his floor was the wheat. And then all this extra junk, he would just burn it all up and he would keep his wheat down here for himself. That's kind of the picture there. That's essentially the ministry of Jesus. It's going to be a separating of the wheat and the chaff. And that separating line for us essentially is the gospel. That if you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, you're the wheat, you're you're the good. And if you are in fact one who has refused to um, confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you're considered the chaff that will be burnt with an unquenchable fire, is what it describes in verse 17. Now, this type of preaching that John is doing is going to have the tendency to get him into a little bit of trouble, uh, as you might imagine. In particular, John apparently had a habit of naming names in his sermons, and so it wasn't really just good enough for him to tell people to repent, but he would actually tell specific people that they needed to repent. Uh, and, so, and he didn't care how famous they were. So uh, look at this in verse 19. When Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So the ministry of John ultimately is going to end in him in prison. In fact, it's going to end ultimately with him being beheaded at the request of a young lady named Herodias. Um, The problem that John has here is with Herod. Uh, So Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had many sons from multiple wives. Several of them were selected to govern, govern over regions of the Jews that formerly Herod the Great ruled over. And so in particular, we're worried about two of those sons. One, Herod the Tetrarch, who is mentioned here and was also mentioned, by the way, in verse 1. And then his brother Philip, this other leader, well, his half-brother Philip, so same dad, different mom. His half-brother Philip marries Herod's niece. And you'd think Herod might not be okay with this, but his reasoning for not being okay with this is because he had kind of hoped to marry his niece himself. And so in fact, he then convinces his niece, who's married to his half-brother, to leave him and be married now to him. And so now he's married to his sister-in-law niece. And John said, that ain't right. (laughs) And Herod wasn't too happy about it, and so he arrested John and locked him up in prison. The other great thing, though, about John's ministry is, again, he was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was preparing everyone for the Messiah. So because his ministry was popular and people were coming out from the cities into the wilderness where he was, it's a great platform for Jesus to now make himself known. And so Jesus shows up in verse 21 When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, 
In you, I am well pleased. So imagine this kind of scene. All these people are out there in the wilderness hearing John preach about the coming Messiah. Who's it going to be? Is it John? Who's it going to be? Who's the Messiah? And there was this expectation, we're told, in their hearts way back in verse 15. They just were expecting this Messiah to show up. And then Jesus shows up to be baptized. A couple of things that are covered in other Gospels. Uh, For instance, uh, one of the other Gospels mentions that when Jesus showed up and asked to be baptized, John said, are you kidding? You should baptize me, not the other way around, because Jesus didn't need to repent. But Jesus said, allow it at this time, just for this purpose, so that he can make himself known. And here's what happens. When Jesus is baptized, he's then praying, and heaven itself opens up. So now you've got a crowd of people. One guy gets baptized, and heaven itself opens up. And then the Holy Spirit from heaven descends down and lands on Jesus. And then a voice in heaven says, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. It's pretty obvious at this point who the one who's greater than John is, isn't it? The Son of God. And this has really been something that Luke's been setting up. Remember, in chapter 1, Mary was told that she would conceive a son by God. The Son of God. And now here we see Jesus being proclaimed the Son of God by this voice out of heaven after heaven itself opens up and the Holy Spirit descends on him. It's this very obvious moment that this is the one who is anointed. The the word Christ, by the way, means the anointed one. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit from heaven and declared the Son of God from heaven itself. It's pretty obvious that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. But there is some technical things that have to be dealt with as well. Some promises were made in the Old Testament that we have to see if Jesus fulfills those. And those promises have to do with his lineage. He has to be a descendant of Abraham. We already talked about that. He also has to be a descendant of King David because God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. So if he's really going to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of Israel, if he's really going to be that person, he also has to have the right lineage, the right genealogy to make that happen. So we now have the genealogy of Jesus at the end of this chapter. And this will seem annoying for a minute, but I'm going to go ahead and read through the whole genealogy because God took the trouble to write it down. And then I'll explain why it's important. And so uh, just bear with me as I butcher all of these names. Verse 23 When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Shimeon, the son of Josek, the son of Yoda, Joda, not Yoda, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jerem, the 
the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, and the son of Eliakim, the son of Maliah, the son of Manana, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, that's the important one, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Solomon, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, that's the other important one, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Selah, the son of Canaan, the son of Araxphad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's a lot of names. Uh, the trick with genealogies is you read them really fast and with confidence, and nobody knows if you're saying the names right. I'm sure a Jewish person would just say there's not enough phlegm in there. You didn't quite say those names right. But that being said, as we follow through this genealogy, typical what I tell people when you're looking at a genealogy, it's really important to figure out who the first person is, Jesus, and the last person is, who's he a descendant of, the Son of God. So just as God has declared him his son, this genealogy takes it all the way back to God as well, showing that connection that way also. There are some interesting things about this genealogy, though, as I said, he goes through the line of David, fulfilling that promise that God made to David. He goes through the line of Abraham, fulfilling the promises that were made to Abraham in Genesis 12. But uh, the interesting thing in here, uh, you'll note that there's also a genealogy in Matthew. Matthew's genealogy has the same information from David to Abraham, but there are some differences outside of that. The first difference, not really a big one, is that uh, uh, Matthew stops at Abraham. He doesn't go all the way back to Adam and then to God. He just stops at Abraham. He's just giving us that line from Abraham up to Jesus. Um, The other thing, though, that is uh, more interesting and a little bit confusing to people is getting from Jesus to David is completely different in Luke's genealogy than it is in Matthew's genealogy. And that can be a little bit confusing and uh, concerning to some people. But I think it really hinges on this verse 23, as was supposed the son of Joseph. Uh, And you'll recognize right away that Matthew... And Luke have a different name after that. And what's believed is this case is that Matthew really is going from Joseph all the way back. And you can trace Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. You can trace his lineage all the way back to King David, Abraham, and then ultimately to God, right? Because we all came from Adam. That's the idea, right? But so you can legitimately do that. But does that really count? Because Jesus wasn't a blood relative of Joseph. So what it's establishing, though, is the legal line, because in that system of thought, the legal heritage came from the father, right? So it does establish that he has this legal claim to the throne. But what's fascinating is he has a bloodline that goes through Mary. And so when it says Eli there, that's not Joseph's dad. That's actually Mary's dad, Joseph's father-in-law, and then tracks back all the way to David. And you see there's this branch at David. Matthew takes it from David to Solomon, but Levi, Levi, sorry, um, Luke takes it from David to his oldest son, Nathan. And what you'll recognize if both Joseph and Mary were relatives of David, although here, generationally, not in the weird way that Herod was married to his niece, they're married, you know, dozens of generations later 
after that uh, historical connection there. And what that aligns with, that Jesus also fulfills the bloodline of the Messiah. So he has a legal right through his father. He has a bloodline right through his mother. That bloodline right is pretty important because of a a weird thing that happens in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 22, there's a guy uh, called either Jeconiah or Coniah. He was supposed to be the king of Judah when they were carried off into the Babylonian captivity, but he was a pretty evil guy, so evil. And remember, they had lots of evil kings, right? Uh, But he was so evil that God says to Jeconiah, your bloodline is cut off. No one from your bloodline will be allowed to sit on the throne. No one. He actually says the signet ring will be removed from you. So it's called Jeconiah's bloodline curse. What's cool about that is if you follow Joseph, you will go through Jeconiah. But it doesn't matter because Jesus isn't related to Joseph by blood, only by legal right. And yet through Mary, he does have a bloodline that skips Jeconiah and goes instead to David through a different son of David. So it really is kind of a cool thing that's happening there. You're seeing with these two gospels, these two different genealogies, both of them, one through the legal right and the other through the bloodline, showing that Jesus, in fact, has a right to be the king of Israel. And so what Luke has done for us is laid out the prophesied, promised forerunner, John the Baptist, a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah that Jesus fulfills that, He then has the voice of God himself and the the Holy Spirit of God saying, this is the beloved son. And then he has the royal lineage there, the genealogy. So these three different ways, he's proving the case. He's giving the evidence that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Now those things might not be as important to us, but you can believe for the Jewish people Those things are key importance, all of those things. Genealogies were super important to them. Uh, They kept these genealogies because in the way that God established the laws of the nation of Israel, the genealogy proved your inheritance rights. So the land was divided amongst the 12 tribes when they first came into Israel. It was divided amongst the 12 tribes. And you could only inherit that land through the right lineage. And so if you were to come back to that land years later and say, I, this, is, this is my land by right because I'm from that family, you'd have to prove through the genealogy. And you can see how this plays out. Uh, when they return from the Babylonian captivity, there's a group of Levites, people of the tribe of Levi, who come to the temple and say, hey, we're so excited you're rebuilding the temple. Can we serve? We're Levites. And at the temple they said, can you prove it? (laughs) And because they couldn't show their lineage, they weren't even able to serve in the temple. Now that might seem like a strange thing from our perspective. We would just go downtown, get a 23andMe kit, and just swab our cheek and be like, boom, I'm a Levite. Or a Scottish prince, or whatever it says you happen to be, right? That's what we would do. To them, that was a foreign concept. But those simple little laws that God put in the scriptures allowed us to maintain these evidences so we could see them later. It's powerful the things that God is doing there, but we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is the promised Messiah who had the prophesied forerunner, who has the voice of God himself saying, this is my son, and he has the proper lineage to sit as the king of the nation of Israel. That's a lot of stuff in there. That's the hard part about doing a chapter every week, but uh, let's go ahead and we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, so thankful for passages 
uh, that you've given to us in Scripture. Each one is important for different reasons and in different ways. Uh, Lord, I think uh, for myself, uh, I do get excited about some of these little theological things that all kind of come together into a neat package for us. And I don't know if that gets everyone else excited, but it does me. Uh, But probably more importantly in this passage is just the very simple idea of of what it means to live a life of repentance. Uh, That we would actually see a change in who we are. That we would actually bear the fruit of repentance. It would become obvious to people that we're living as Christians in this world. Lord, for myself and for others, is that we would distinguish ourselves in the places we work because of the honorable way in which we do, that we don't deceive and we don't steal, that we share and we take care of people, and that we just show contentment in where we are. Lord, help us to be the image bearers of Jesus Christ wherever we go in this world. Lord, help us to be the fragrance of your son, Jesus Christ. The world would know that we belong to you. Father, for some of them, it would create a longing in them. Lord, would you sanctify us and purify us? Remove the chaff from our life so that we can better represent you in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.